0: Welcome to Writing It, a podcast by Ed Adams. The Triangle, episode five. Dirty money, here's how to clean it. A novel by Ed Adams. (music) Delays and findings. A few streets away, Jake's apartment had been watched for around two hours. Two local petty criminals sourced by a mysterious American were looking for the best way into the flat. The two burglars had seen a few people leave during early morning and then some routine deliveries of milk and mail but the property looked easy enough to enter. It was easy. A communal door to the stairwell, no special locks, no alarm, not even an entry camera. Jake's doors was easy to open. Inside it was easy to see why. There were not a lot of valuable items. There were books, CDs, a few magazines, a fancy plasma TV, a sleek MacBook laptop. The two intruders opened a large blue IKEA bag they had brought with them and dropped the MacBook into it. They riffled through the CDs, picking up a large pile of hand-labeled ones and added those to the collection. Then they started a long and mainly silent and thorough search of the apartment, picking a few further items to add to their collection in the bag. They seized paper notepads, a few electronic gadgets, a couple of memory sticks, a digital camera and a music player. By now, they were using a second IKEA bag. Their search lasted less than 10 minutes, then they had looked at one another, then at the rooms they had searched, which still looked much as they had when they entered. They reopened the door, left, and one of them reset the lock, such that their entry would not be obvious. Struggling downstairs with the two bright bags, they slipped around the nearby street corner into a parked and slightly dented white van. Then a short drive of no more than a few hundred yards to meet the American again, who had been patiently waiting for them in a nearby coffee shop. In a few moments, the three of them were in the van and mingling with the London traffic. On the French auto route, things had slowed to a standstill. There had been an accident ahead, and both lanes seemed blocked. Amelia looked into the air and saw a helicopter, air ambulance. There was going to be a significant delay. She switched on the radio and tuned to a Classics channel. This gave her some time to reflect. Her best option was to get back to Cannes and then she could complete the alibi from the first assignment. She could also review the ease of access to the target based upon the information and addresses given. Most of that could be done by the internet but she would not use any communications until she returned to Cannes. She didn't want any signals which could pinpoint her until she was in good and ready. She drank from the bottled water. It said sport water on the side. She wondered what the difference was. The delay outside Lyon became excruciating. The accident had pretty much closed the autoroute. By the time Amelia was moving again, nearly two hours had passed. The French emergency services had been driving along the hard shoulder. By the position of the helicopter, it looked as if the accident was at least a couple of kilometres ahead. As she edged forward, most of whatever had happened had been cleared. Off to the side of the road, like some felled dinosaur, was an articulated lorry on its side. As she drove past it, she knew the rules about not slowing to look, but it was almost unavoidable after two hours of boredom and then a chance to see the source of the inflicted pain. As she started to pick up speed again, Amelia noticed that she had consumed more fuel than expected as a consequence of the hold up and would now need to stop somewhere again to fill up for the last part of the journey. The American was in a Lebanese restaurant in London. He sat in a private room with the two men who had visited Jake's flat. Together they'd been sifting through the contents of the blue bags, looking for something very specific. The American picked up the digital recorder. We need to check this, he said, and also the computers. He flicked quickly through the menu on the Olympus. It showed dates and durations of recordings. He scrolled the dates and located an entry around two weeks earlier when Jake had visited Darren Collins. The recorder showed a note. Uploaded Oct 27. So Jake had moved the recording to his PC. They opened the MacBook. The screen had a big diagonal crack, but still immediately sprang to life and displayed a blue background with a small number of icons, including, to their surprise, a small picture of the digital recorder. A click later, and they were in a folder full of voice recordings. A few moments later, they were scrolling to the date of Jake's visit, And a click later, they listened to the recording, which began with a lengthy, if muffled, conversation by the Arabs, followed by the interview with Darren Collins. The whole recording was stuttery, which seemed to be a factor of the damage suffered to the computer, as if the disk was having trouble reading the file. The American shook his head and thought, I hate these Brit criminal lowlives. They can wreck anything. He weighed up the odds of finding anything else useful from the two criminals, and then reached in his pocket to produce an envelope containing a large number of banknotes. It's all here, he said. You can count it later, but at the moment I need you out of here. If you stay here, you will be in danger, and remember, if you meet me or see me again, you will also be in danger. Goodbye. He dismissed the two burglars, and they left the restaurant. The American remained in the room for another hour. He had loaded his own computer and linked it to the damaged one, stolen from Jake. He selected some specialised software, copying the stuttering sound recording across to his computer... He then spent some time editing it and cut a copy of the modified recording to the USB stick in his own PC. Next, the American made a phone call. I have something I think you should hear, he said. After a few minutes of discussion, the American assembled Jake's belongings back into one of the blue bags. He placed his own PC in a backpack and then, carrying both bags, he left the room. Safety first. I agree with Bigsy, said Claire. We need to think about safety. One of us needs to go back to Jake's, but, looking at Bigsy, it will be better for it to be one of us two, Bigsy. Or both of us, answered Bigsy. That way we can look out for one another. Claire shot a glance across to Bigsy and then to Jake. Or we could just call the police right now, said Claire. The thing is, said Jake, there's a little bit more. They looked back at Jake. He looked sheepish. "'Well, after the calls from the American, I did call him back,' said Jake. "'He asked to meet me and explain a few things about the meeting with Darren. "'I asked him why, and he said there was a good story for me, "'as well as some information for him. "'He said that I might be in some danger, but I, that I should not call the police. "'Also that all was not what it seemed when I saw him with the Arabs at Collins' office. "'I agreed on a date to meet him at Yo Sushi's for lunch, "'you know, the one across the bridge from Westminster.' I thought he might have been a possible client, and that's why I let it run. ''Jake,'' sighed Claire. ''Is there anything else you haven't told us?'' she asked. ''We can't help you if you don't tell us everything.'' ''Claire's right,'' said Bigsy. ''This is looking quite dangerous, and I don't want to be finding out extra facts when it's just too late.'' ''OK,'' said Jake. ''The only other thing is my meeting with the American is tomorrow.'' Claire looked at Jake and Bigsy. ''We can get a lot done today,'' she said. We can get the recording from Jake's, try to find out some more about Lucien's murder, make a list of everything we know, and then decide whether we should take it to the police, even despite the American's warning to Jake. I also think Jake should stay here, said Claire. If someone is looking for him, it would be stupid to return to his flat. Also, no one will be able to connect the three of us, Jake. Take my phone, switch yours off, and don't answer any calls except Biggs's number. Once this is clearer, we can re evaluate. All three thought this sounded very melodramatic although Lucien's murder meant they knew that they were getting into something perilous. Bigsy suggested that he and Claire travel over to Jake's. Bigsy already had a key to Jake's flat, which had sometimes been useful if they were meeting there in an evening, and Jake was late, which was often the case. They decided to use taxis to get around. It wasn't far from Bigsy's to Jake's, but they could be invisible for longer in taxis. Jake said "Claire, This is important. If you don't hear from us by phone in two hours, you must call the police anyway. Jake nodded his acceptance and looked at his watch. By now it was 10.30 in the morning. In France, the Peugeot was just pulling into the diesel line in the service station. Amelia got out and quickly filled the tank of the car. She paid with euros and was back on the road inside 10 minutes. Another 300 kilometers to Cannes, mainly autoroute. Claire had a good idea on the way to Jake's they would stop off at the nearby Tesco Metro supermarket and buy a small quantity of groceries. Busy like this, because it could be a new supply of junk food. Claire's point was to make it look as if they were routinely shopping and then carrying something into Jake's. If no one was watching, it didn't matter if they were, it would look as if they were doing something normal. The carrier also gave them a container for their return journey. They splashed out on a three-pound recyclable bag which had robust handles and looked as if it could take some weight. Getting into Jake's was easy enough, although they had wanted to look around the area first. In reality, with no one watching, the visit looked as if it would be uneventful. Bigsy went straight into the kitchen and switched on the kettle, while Claire looked around the fairly neat room for the recorder and Jake's MacBook. To begin with, neither of them considered anything abnormal in the flat. Then. Claire noticed that Jake's computer was missing, and there were none of Jake's computer disks either. It looks as if Jake's computer has gone, called Claire to Bigsie. He walked in and surveyed the room. Definitely, he said, looking at where the laptop was normally situated. Then he looked under the desk. The Wi-Fi connection is still here, he said, dropping into his professional techno babble. He traced wires to another box. And here's Jake's backup drive, he proclaimed, pulling a small dusty box from the floor behind the desk, I installed this myself, he said. I knew Jake would be hopeless at this type of thing, so I set him up a little box to do the backups automatically overnight as long as he left the computer switched on. He carefully unplugged the box, which was about the size of a large novel, and put it, with its connecting wires, into the Tesco's bag. Then he looked through a couple of other shelves and asked whether Claire had found the digital recorder. Claire shook her head. They continued to search through drawers. Bixie found a stash of Mars chocolate bars and added them to the Tesco bag. OK, said so Bigsy, let's get out of here, with everything useful. As they left, Bigsy texted to Jake that everything was OK. Around a mile away, Truman and Green were leaving the police station. They had spent most of last night and the morning together, continuing the investigation. They were pretty sure that the identity information for Lucien Duchamp was accurate. They were also surmising that his background was legitimate and that they could not find links of him to anything even slightly off-colour, No parking tickets, nothing. Come on, said Truman, realising they'd worked a solid 20 hours. A swift pint is in order. They trooped over the road to the nearby pub. Inside was a brown bar and several roughly placed brown tables with four chairs around each table. There were three men, each alone, sitting in the bar. A fruit machine twinkled lights in the corner and television without sound was running an old soccer match on a Sky TV channel. They picked a corner table and Andy Green ordered two pints of beer from the bar. What do you make of it, he asked as he sat down, balancing the beers on slightly curled beer mats on the dark brown table. It's all dead ends, answered Truman. A blame-free victim, no enemies, no suspicion of crime connections, yet a clinically executed assassination. The only woman suspect is captured on TV inside the gallery and across the road, yet the car with false plates she is being driven in seems to disappear without a trace in London's traffic. There are no traceable cell phones to give whereabouts, and no one else has come forward with any comments. We can up the stakes with a poster appeal, but I wonder what this is all about. Green nodded his agreement. It's as if this was the wrong victim, but there was hardly anyone else in the gallery. Those present have all got strong stories and nothing to create any reason for anything like this. So maybe it was the wrong victim, ventured Green. I know we still need to run lots of checks, but the victim's basic story seems legitimate. Yeah, I was wondering too, responded Truman. The gallery was open for press viewings when this happened, not for the general public. Yet Deshaunt was an office worker. I think this may be the lead. Perhaps the murderer thought Deshaunt was someone else. They look at one another. So how did Spurs get on? continued Green, sipping at his pint.